Welcome to the Asian Heart Mind Body Collective. I'm Adele Ray. And I'm Danielle Yung. We're here to bring essential healing to Asian communities and beyond. This podcast holds sacred circle for everyday people by integrating mindfulness practice, cross-cultural ritual, and storytelling. With the tools of our own medicine, we unearth the impact of intergenerational trauma, unravel the deeper connection between all things, and explore the spiritual mystery of simply living every day in our beautiful Asian bodies. Join us and dive deeply into the discovery of our own medicine and heart-mind-body awareness. Community advocate Chris Ngong was born in Nebraska and raised in West Oakland. He tells his story of how the McDonald's fast food chain impacted his infant life. He also unpacks his own intergenerational trauma with refugee parents, describes healing-centered engagement to support youths and their caregivers, and discusses navigating anti-blackness within himself and the community at large to build cross-cultural solidarity in West Oakland and beyond. Closing out this episode, Chris will guide us in a tea meditation to demonstrate the interconnection of tea ritual between all cultures. Hi everyone, so excited to have our guest today, Chris Nguyen. Chris is an Oakland native and a graduate of UC Berkeley and his beautiful family is from Cambodia. Chris holds many roles in the community as a public service professional. Uh, what's incredible about his background is he's served in multiple contexts and environments in schools, affordable housing, recreational centers, residential services, and family resource centers throughout West Oakland. His work currently is with Lincoln Families at the Mandela Family Resource Center, as well as Flourish Agenda. His approach is very much grounded in cultural competency and community, and he's a deep practitioner of the healing-centered engagement way. He's also a podcast host of a beautiful show called Karma Chronicles. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Chris. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor. It is a pleasure. been a big fan of both of your work and this beautiful podcast, and I'm just really excited to be here, y'all. So Chris, we would love to know about your rich journey, your roots and how you got to where you are right now. It's kind of big, but you can start anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what I always like to start with, Adele, is a quick story. So for our listeners out there and our community members and our brothers and sisters in community, my story really starts in Nebraska. And people really kind of look twice when I say Nebraska because I'm West Oakland, almost born and raised, and I spent the majority of my life in West Oakland. But my story starts in Midwest of the United States in Nebraska. I was born there in a small town called Alliance, Nebraska, to two refugee, beautiful parents of mine from Cambodia. And when I was born, y'all, everything went well until it didn't. And it somehow all links back to McDonald's. So let me explain a little bit. So about five or six days after I was born, big healthy boy on time, all of a sudden my mom and my dad recognize, recognize hey, there's, there's something going on with my baby right now. I'm their firstborn. They're new to the country. Their English at that time was limited. They're in the middle of Alliance, Nebraska, in the middle of the Midwest. And they're like, oh, we really need to do something here. So they called the local ambulance and the paramedics came and they said, hey, this is a big deal here. This is serious. We need to rush your baby boy. And at that time, 
I am a newborn to the hospital. And when I went to the local hospital or clinic at that time, because it's such a small town, the medical professionals did some diagnosis and they said, your boy needs surgery ASAP. And this was a shock to my mom, a shock to my dad. So they rushed me in the ambulance and they took me across state borders to Denver, Colorado, the Children's Hospital. And when they did their evaluations and when the x-rays came in, they knew they needed to rush me to surgery right away. So when they rushed me to surgery, they opened me up and they noticed a mass in my abdomen. When they pulled out the mass, they recognized remnants of hair. They recognized remnants of teeth. So what it actually was, was my twin, y'all. So my twin was actually in my abdomen, which caused some health concerns for me. And that was the start of my life, y'all. That was the start of my life. So fast forward about, I want to say, more than 25 years after that. I'm sitting at a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown in Oakland with my dad, and we're aspirationally thinking, right? We're playing the game of, hey, if you win the lotto one day, what would you do? So, you know, buy a house, pay off debt, go on vacation, usual things. And then my dad stops me and he says, make sure you give some money to McDonald's. I was like, McDonald's? And y'all know, you know, our listeners, we've all been in Chinese restaurants. It's bustling. Chinese restaurants are fine dining here and there too, but for the most part, traditional Chinese restaurants, a lot of things going on. Conversations, our elders arguing about who's going to pay the check, all of these things, right? So I look at my dad, I'm like, McDonald's, huh? Break it down for me. I gave him that look. And he said, yeah, because back when you were in Denver, my mom, your mom and myself, we didn't really have anywhere to stay. So the hospital sent us across the street to the Ronald McDonald House. And there we spent the last, the next two months caring for you as you were in the NICU. So I'm first learning about the specifics of this story, y'all, when I'm 31, 32 years old. So this story and the details that I just told y'all, I didn't learn that at five or six or 10 years old. I only heard the details in my mid-30s. Because at that time, my dad was in a place where he had healed enough where he can tell me that story. To set the stage, these are refugee folks from Cambodia. And as we know, as Asian folks, or just people of color, refugees don't get to choose where they go. Not really. You go where you can because you're escaping a situation that is life or death. And how long were they in the United States before this happened? About two to three years or so, so not too long. And part of that ambiguity, Adele, and I appreciate you naming that, is because a lot of the past, we know that our elders and even our parents, because a lot of us have direct or indirect connections to that period in Southeast Asia, we don't really speak about the details. That doesn't really come up. We don't have those conversations. At most, I overhear our elders talking to mm -hmm. each other and telling stories. Right, Daniel? Right. Yep, that's right. Mm -hmm. And that's where my work really centers on. It centers on identifying our intergenerational trauma, not only in Southeast Asian families, but families all over West Oakland. 
that we'll get into a little bit more. And we really recognize that trauma shows up very differently for all of our caregivers, all of our young people, and our healing shows up differently as well. Because McDonald's and the concept of McDonald's and the name has a lot of visceral reactions when we talk about it in the inner city. But for my dad and for my mom, the Golden Arches and McDonald's, it recognizes and it identifies really differently for them because it reminded them of a time where they needed support and a time where they built community with other families who also had their toddlers and newborns in the NICU. And it reminded them of a time, a hard time, where they got through together. So from there, we came uh, eventually to the Bay. But, but yeah, y'all, that's how my story starts. Well, thank you for sharing just how intimate that was for you. Uh, I'm imagining your parents at the Ronald McDonald House and imagining you in the Chinese restaurant hearing the details of the story for the first time. Like, can you recall for yourself what what was rushing through you or what was present for you in, in hearing all of this? Surprise, shock, interest in hearing more. It's almost like I was hearing about someone else's story, except I'm, it's mine. And I'm unpacking details and layers about my own journey that I was never privy to. But I was never privy to it as I look back on it now for protection. Because not only did my parents just not talk about that time, not really, it was rooted in, I'm not going to let that define you and who you are as you move through this new country as our firstborn. So it was resonating for me, but it was also heavy. It was heavy on the, on the spirit, y'all. It was heavy mm -hmm. on the soul. And even now, we reflect and I reflect on it together and individually about what that time must have been for them and the subsequent years, too. Because the thing about that condition, y'all, is, you know, when I tell that story, people are like, wow, that's, that's amazing because it's rare. It's so rare that if you do research on it, there's not a lot of research on it, right? I'm going to mess up the medical term, but the medical term names it as fetus and fetu. And it's on average about one in every 500,000 or so births has this condition. And for infants or sometimes folks grow into preteen areas, but for folks who do have this condition, I read that there are a lot of medical complications surrounding that. But for me, through the blessings of the ancestors and the will of my parents and, you know, just plain energy from the world, after that initial ring of surgeries, I've been fine. And 30 yeah. plus years later, I'm sitting here and healthy as I realistically can be, uh, both in mind and in spirit. And um, I have a lot of people to be thankful for because of that. And that story, and I tell that story because it really drives my work, mm. really drives what I do now. So people ask me from time to time, and Adele, I'm sure people ask you, and Danielle, I know people have asked you, where does your passion come from? Why do mm -hmm. you do what you do? And we all have a journey and a story behind it. And that story might not be defined yet, y'all. And that's one of the things that I want our listeners and your listeners to really understand in our community is this journey of healing is exactly that. It's a journey. Mm -hmm. Not meant to have all of our answers right away, but it will come to fruition when we're ready to, to see it. One thing that stuck out to me was what you said about your dad, that even in his own 
in his own healing journey, he he came to a place of readiness to to finally share uh, some of the details with you more intimately. Would you be willing to say more about your dad's journey? And and I ask because I I think a lot of our listeners are are just trying to be with you know the distance that we might have with our parents. Uh, not knowing the details, not understanding what they went through coming to America. So yeah, just a little bit more about your yeah, dad. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Danielle. And I think a lot of our, our fellow community members really experience a lot of that same dynamic between us and our caregivers, right? Um, it's really nuanced. And in a lot of ways, as I get older, it gets even more nuanced. Because as a child, as a teenager growing up, your normal is just your normal, yo. So I grew up in West Oakland, and folks might have certain ideations about what West Oakland is, but if that's your normal, that's what you know. And not having some of these deeper conversations about the past, not having some of these conversations about what happened to our collective families back home in Southeast Asia was just a normal occurrence. And didn't think twice, and I didn't think twice about asking, about talking about it. But knowing how trauma really transfers intergenerationally and knowing how healing and the lack of healing really shows up now in the work that we do as an adult, it really has me reflective of my relationship with my parents, my dad, my mom. And I'm sure in his shoes and his eyes, it was such a struggle to maintain sanity, right? To maintain sanity with all the loss of life of loved ones back home, coming to a new country, wanting to intentionally assimilate to not cause any trouble, not cause any issue, right? We've heard that all the time, right? Don't cause trouble, work hard, go to school, keep it pushing, right? Keep it pushing, save up a little bit of coin so you can pass it on to your next generation. So even this day, Danielle, I'm still unpacking that relationship with my dad. Some conversations we do have, some we don't have yet, right? And I'll send him this podcast episode, and he'll be even surprised at listening to some of the things that I'm saying now, right? Shout out to dad. Absolutely. Shout out to dad, shout out to moms, and shout out to all of our dads, right, who had to navigate a new country with its own racial discriminatory history about what it means to be Asian in this world and in this country, right? So that's a great question, and that's something that I continuously try to unpack. And one of the things that we say at my work with Flourish Agenda, and this came from the comparable Miss T, so I want to give her uh, all, the, all the love in the world, Tierra Knox, is she came up with this term called vulnerageousness. So at Flourish, what we say is you know you're on your healing journey and you know it feels right when you're, you know you're being vulnerable and courageous at the same time. Nobody can answer when that time is for you. Nobody can tell you how that feels like. But when you feel that you know that you are being vulnerable and courageous at the same time, you know you're on your healing journey. And this is where I feel I'm at right now, right? And leaning into some courageous conversations that might be uncomfortable. When you ask questions like, what happened to auntie or what happened to unc? Are you sure you're ready for that answer? And are you sure you're ready to bring up those memories for those folks who experienced it firsthand? Oftentimes, when we think about our healing, y'all, it's better not to even talk about it because talking about it brings it back on the heart and you don't know where that's going to take you. That's a trauma response, y'all. So it's a constant unpacking situation that, you know, it's a day by day thing. 
Oh my gosh, I have so many questions in so many directions here. <laughs> I mean, you just open a whole can of worms. I don't know where to begin. So I'm just going to start with Oakland, West Oakland. What was it like growing up here with all that you brought, with, with all that your family brought growing up in Oakland? Absolutely. Um, I love West Oakland. So I know our, our listeners can't watch us right now, but if you listen, you could probably hear some of that West Oakland slang in my verse, you know. So West Oakland is in my heart straight up um you know growing up in west oakland was a blessing that's what when people ask that's what i always say because what i recognize what i learned about growing up in west oakland is the power of community so what we came here with our families right us as chinese ethnically from cambodia we came here with our uncles and our connected family our nuclear family and our related family we leaned on it but we also know as people of color to really thrive and flourish in this country, we need community beyond our blood family. And that's what West Oakland taught me, Adil. It taught me how to be connected to something that's bigger than yourself. It taught me to how to have pride in this thing called community. And it taught me um, just how loving and beautiful African-American culture is and folks from the African diaspora really show up and how they show up for themselves in community as well. I explain it all the time, Adele. I said I'm a visitor that was privileged enough to be invited into experiencing some of black culture because that's what I am. I'm a visitor, right? And West Oakland specifically, for folks who might not know, has a rich history, beautiful history of African-American culture that's specifically rooted in times from the South when folks came here to work on the shipyards at the port because of, guess what, war. That's what brings us and all, unfortunately, bridges us all together, y'all. War and capitalism, right? So growing up in West Oakland, that's what I really learned. Was it hard, Adele? Hell yeah. Especially in the early 90s with all the things that I was witness to, with some of the things that I did, some of the harms that I caused. All of these things, it's a tremendous amount of pain. Tremendous amount of pain that never stops and gets passed down, right? So some stories I can get into, some I can't. Right. Because it's it's too rooted in the streets. But, you know, that's what I learned more than anything as I reflect now as an adult is all the coaches who looked out for me, all the teachers, all the, uh, you know, uncles and aunties and community members who just looked out for your boy. Remember, as firstborn of a refugee family navigating Oakland Unified School District. Right. There are so many people in community, vast majority of them identify as black who looked out for me. And that was something that has always resonated with me. Thanks, Chris. You had shared a little bit about uh, your work with the the young people of West Oakland. Uh, and a question I remember you sharing that you offered to them is, how are we healing today? I know that comes from your healing-centered engagement framework with Flourish Agenda and wondered if you can say more about your youth work. Yeah, absolutely. So in 2012, that's when I really jumped into youth development work, right? So I graduated Berkeley, I think, Danielle, around the same time you did, 07, 08. And I was actually a professional sports writer because sports was really my passion. And sports is what really connected me uh, to community, especially at McClyman's High School, School of Champions. Those who know, know, <laughs> you know. But um yeah, the, the youth work was really interesting, y'all, really interesting, because I started my youth development work at the Acorn Recreational Center in West Oakland. So as a UC Berkeley grad, 
you know, I was blessed enough to off, uh, be offered an opportunity uh, to, to run the rec center, to help run the rec center at Acorn, right? And I looked at that as a blessing because, again, what I learned as an adult is outside of your parents, nobody owes you nothing. Nobody in this world owes you nothing, right? So all the folks in the community who really looked out for me and gave me opportunity, I'm forever grateful, right? So it started really there at Acorn, and I made a lot of mistakes as a new youth development worker because I grew up in Acorn, but it's, I mean, I grew up in West Oakland. I didn't grow up in Acorn. I grew up in West Oakland, but it's different when you're on the other side and you are the actual practitioner. So you got to cut your teeth and you got to learn and you got to grow. So from there, I held the various roles that you beautifully said um, and made me sound better than, than I actually am in my intro. But one of the things, as we think about youth and we think about healing and in 2021 in my work with Flourish Agenda, getting to your question about how are you healing today, it's really transforming our language from what happened to you as a young person to what is right with you and what is your aspirations. So we recognize that our language plays a significant role in how young people really affirm themselves and how they model themselves after the, the, those around them. So how are you healing today actually came from one of our community members that we worked with. So he really you know, rationalize it by saying this, instead of saying, how are you doing today? And then two seconds later, moving on, instead of saying, how are you doing today? And pausing and listening to the answer intentionally, we say, how are you healing today? Because we want to get deeper into our, our healing process and how do we tap into that? Because I bet you the next time you ask a question, and I invite all of our listeners right now, Danielle and Adele, the next person you talk to in community, ask them, how are you healing today? I bet you they'll probably pause and they'll have to think about it because it's such a question. It's such a unique question that we're not really asking right now. But that's the question that we asked. And all it took was a sh subtle shift in language. And that's part of what our healing center and engagement work really aims to do is really shift the paradigm about how we're looking about our ability to heal. Yeah, that's beautiful, Chris. And how, how do you see the impact of that question? on these young folks? What kind of responses do you get? Young folks are actually ready. And that's the thing that our adult practitioners often forget, is that we think we need to tell young folks and young people what to do and how to do it. Young, our young people are incredibly reflective, incredibly reflective. It shows up in so many different ways. And in 2021, it shows up in their creativity on TikTok, on IG stories, our young people are so creative and they're trendsetters in every which way. They always have been. So when we ask questions like, how are you healing? Yeah, they might pause and think about it for a second. But when they come back to you, man, they give you beautiful answers. Answers that I didn't even think about. I'll give you an example. It wasn't a young person that I work with specifically, but my wife, shout out to my beautiful wife, Ashley. But she worked with... And it was a young person um, recently that created an art project. And that art project was rooted in Afrocentrism and some of the concepts around that. And the young person developed something so beautiful, so mind-blowingly beautiful, y'all, where I'm like, that's why the people is in young people, the power is in young people. So she created this thing called the Empathy Watch. And she's like, in the future, it's not going to be Apple Watches. It's going to be Empathy Watches. And everybody's going to wear one. So when we talk to folks, when we encounter folks at work, 
when we say and ask things like, how are you healing or how are you doing? That empathy watch tells you about the other person's triggers. The empathy watch tells you about how to properly approach the other person to be able to center their humanity in this work. And if everybody have empathy watches, we'll be able to cultivate a more healing community. That came from a young person, y'all. And I was blown That's away. Brilliant. brilliant, right, Annie? Yeah. We need an empathy watch. Yeah. Sign me up for the empathy watch. Forget Silicon Valley. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? That's real. So that's an example of the power of young people. And that's really just holding space for their own vehicle and their own aspirational thinking. Because just like my dad and just like myself and our collective communities and our young people, people of color have been told over and over again that there's something wrong with us. That's the whole history of even therapy, y'all. And I'm a social worker by trade. But I'm telling y'all, it's meant to tell people of color, and specifically black folks in a lot of ways, because it's all rooted in anti-blackness, let's not get it twisted, that there's something the hell wrong with us, when it ain't. It ain't nothing wrong with us. So we need to shift our language to be able to operate in a way that is more aspirational, because we all got it, y'all, collectively and individually. Yeah, and just to point out, you know, West Oakland is, of course, the birthplace of the Black Panthers. And they they were revolutionaries and, you know, Black power, right? Black love, dispelling these self-like negative perceptions in the Black community. And it's just so beautiful to hear you talk, Chris, about, you know, the healing work you're doing within this community. And I'm just um, wondering, like, you know, with all the stuff that's been going on, with all this division, it's just so wonderful to hear you speak and, you know, talk about the issues of, of the these divisions that we find and that are exacerbated by media, because your story and the work that you're doing within community um, is is not heard. And so I'm, I'm so honored that we can hear about your experience. I'm hoping you could talk about that and the, the various communities um, that you're working with here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and especially over the past two years with the national uprising due to the murder of brother George Floyd and others, right? Many, many others. It has really fostered conversations where folks were previously uncomfortable having, didn't have to have, and are really bringing up to the forefront a lot of self-reflection and introspection for all of us about how we show up for each other. And as an Asian man, as a uh, son of Cambodian refugees growing up in a vast majority African-American community, those dynamics were always present, right? Those dynamics were always present. Racial dynamics were ever present because we know white supremacy seeks to divide and conquer, and it seeks for us to fight each other, right? I give this example all the time, y'all, and these days educators were like, no way it was like that, especially young educators. But when I was in elementary school, at Lafayette Elementary School from in West Oakland from 1990 to 1996, they divided the classrooms on race. They won't call it that, but that's what they did. So all the Asian kids and the Latinx kids and the kids from the Middle East were in one class. And then the majority of uh, African-American identified students were in the other class. This existed all through OUSD, y'all, for years, for years. Now, they rooted it in English as a second language class. But what they really did, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, I can't speak on it, 
We just know the call the harm that institutions cause. So y'all could do your own understanding and research on that. That it really created divisions too systemically that young people maybe didn't recognize, but started to notice in very informal ways. Started to notice in very informal ways. And that includes the teachers that we had, because not coincidentally, the teachers who were um, you know, leading the, the class with the Asian kids and the Latinx kids were usually not black. And the teachers who were leading the classrooms who were majority African-American students were almost always black. So those divisions, I'm sure, were even rooted in staffing because we know as adults now that healing just doesn't stop. Trauma doesn't stop when you turn 18. If anything else, it continues and it heightens, right? So these dynamics always existed, Adele. And knowing, like I said earlier, how the African-American community um, really looked out for me in so many different ways um, when nobody had to, it really created an interesting dynamic for me, especially as I consume media and especially as we consume media. Because the Asian man in media is really East Asian. The, the Asian man in media is the middle class Asian man, right? And that exists. That absolutely exists. But the story that's never and rarely told is the story of the Southeast Asian man and woman. The Southeast Asian man from Laos and from Vietnam, from Cambodia, that came to this country and grew up in the same inner cities that fostered all of this inequities with everyone else. So James Baldwin talks about this double consciousness and looking back on it now, a lot of us have triple and quadruple consciousness. How do I operate as an Asian man in a black community in a white world, in a white country, right? This double and triple consciousness becomes almost informally you know, um, process as young people, five, six years old, you recognize it. And then you move through it because that's how you got to move to survive, y'all. But as you look back on it now, that thing was messed up. That thing was messed up about how it was set up and continues to be set up. And that's just the educational system. We can go on about housing and all of these other things, right? So I think that's, that's where I want to start kind of unpacking it. But I'm also curious you know, some, you know, of experience of others as well, right? Adele, I'm really curious about your experience and, and Danielle, your experience as well. Because one of the things that I want to lift up is my experience, my experience, but it also doesn't devalue or dismiss any Asian American experience in the United States, right? It's all important. It's all valuable. But getting to your question, the story of the Southeast Asian person is rarely lifted up in mass media, especially when we're talking about to stop Asian hate, that's real, y'all. I'm not dismissing that because that's real. But also talking about the division that it creates amongst people of color in scarce environments that are intentionally designed for us to fight each other. So you've really touched on a lot of the like societal issues and, and place in society, the unheard, unseen position as a Southeast Asian man in West Oakland. And, and you're really doing the work on so many levels, like through working on anti-Blackness to healing community, connecting people. And so I was just wondering about how are you healing today? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great question. Flip it back on me, right? How are you getting today? I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, just in this moment, y'all, two ways. One, I love talking about my journey because that's cathartic and that's part of the healing process because you're really honest with yourself when you have an audience that's listening because you have a responsibility to tell the truth, 
You have a responsibility to tell your truth because other people also walk in your shoes. And for me, I'm blessed, absolutely blessed to be able to be invited on a beautiful platform like this and just tell my little old story, y'all. I'm just me. I'm not special. So I really thank y'all for being able to do that. So that's one. I, I love to tell this story. And I'm at a place now in my life where I'm ready to tell my story. The second part is I do my community work. Because we know all the people that looked out for me and my classmates and, you know, all the folks that grew up for me. Now it's my turn to really move that ball forward for other folks, too. And it's not just something, it's not a novice project. It's something that's a responsibility. Because the community gave back so much for me, I'll be turning my back on community if I didn't give back. So that's my healing process as well. And the third and more, most interesting as, as Southeast Asian folks on this call, y'all, is my family traditionally is Buddhist. And in previous episodes, I know you've had such wonderful guests on that's really deeply rooted in the Buddhist practice. And we know culturally, for our Southeast Asian folks specifically, how Buddhism really intersects between spiritual practice and just straight up culture just straight up culture and what we do, right? So as a young person, the various altars in the house, the various offering to ancestors during various holidays, Chinese New Year on down, it was just something that we did. But as an adult, I decided, and it started interestingly, Danielle, at UC Berkeley, I decided to take a Buddhism class. Now it was taught by a white man. What, were we in the same class? Possibly. Intro to Buddhism 50? See, you remember the number. See, was he I, a visiting professor I from so. somewhere? Yeah, he was. Yes, we were in he the was. same class. I think we were. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, he wasn't. He, I, I want to say he was either German or from the Netherlands. Yeah, or something he had like a that. European accent, I yes, think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So okay. it, was, it was an interesting class. Yeah, see the intersectionality, even our experiences, y'all. Um, and my intention was to really explore if Buddhism, the practice, really aligned with me beyond our cultural practices as just Southeast Asian people. So it was a process that happened over the course, I can't tell you exact years, but ultimately I landed that, yes, Buddhism and its practices and its principles really resonate with me. Doesn't have to resonate with any, everybody. Doesn't even have to resonate with everybody in my family or eventually my children. But for me, it makes sense for me. And from there, I've been on this exploration process of trying to learn more about what Buddhism really means for me. And Adele and Danielle, I actually learn a lot from y'all as I listen to y'all practice, because it really helps me inform myself about what makes sense for me, right? And an interesting tidbit that I say is, you know, when my mom came over here as a refugee, the church is actually the, the one that sponsored her over. So that's part of the reason why they ended up in Alliance, Nebraska in the first place. It was the church. So I also tell people all the time that Jesus Christ, in a, in a very in, indirect but sometimes direct way, actually saved my life. They're like, yep, all praise to Jesus. But I said, well, yes, absolutely, but let me break it down to you why, right? So one of the things that my dad and my mom say all the time is we have love and respect for all people's religions and faiths. But we are Buddhists because that's what resonates with us. That's what your grandparents were. That's our culture. So that's always resonated for me. And I have my altar in my house now with my wife. And my mom has plenty of altars in her house and, and, and my dad too. And it's a constant reminder in the process to be able to tap in in this spiritual practice 
because I feel not only does it really center me, but it honors the ancestors. It honors the voices of folks who couldn't be here anymore, whose lives got caught short by all the things that went on back home. So it's a way to honor them as well. That's beautiful, Chris. There's one thing I have to disagree with you on. You are special. You're special in our book, in our hearts. Thank you. Thank you. you. I love that. I appreciate that affirmation, y'all. Yes, indeed. Chris, as a nod to our podcast title, one question that we like to ask our guests is, what does heart, mind, body mean to you? Yeah, that's a reflection question that I'm I'm ready for, y'all, and I still can't answer because <laughs> y'all ask all to y'all guests. But you know, heart, mind, body really means centering self-reflection time for me, because self-reflection time really is able to tap into how your spirit is feeling, how your mind is feeling, and that how that contradicts the needs of being able to make it in this world right? Capitalism, right? We all work so hard to make more money, to maintain, to get the extra vehicle, to make sure we save some money, to think about retirement. But how does that affect our own healing and our own well-being, right? So heart, body, and mind really taps into that for me to be able to carve out time and just say, how am I feeling and how am I moving in this world? Am I bringing in the energy that I need to fill my cup? And am I putting out the energy for other folks to make sure that they are filling their cup too? Because if both ain't right and both ain't balanced, then it's not heart, body, and mind, y'all. It's one of those three or it's two of those three. But when those three are in alignment, then you know at least for that moment or maybe just that day, you did all right. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about the Karma Chronicles and have our listeners check that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So Flourish Agenda is part of our healing-centered engagement framework. We started a podcast called the Karma Chronicles not too long ago, Karma being C-A-R-M-A, which is an acronym, and it really highlights healers in community. Not necessarily using specifically healing-centered engagement, but we want to highlight all the beautiful souls in community who are doing healing work in their own way. We speak to musicians. We speak to artists. We speak to folks who work in the juvenile justice system. We speak to lecturers. Um, you know, we speak to anybody and everybody who's doing healing work in this world. And karma, specifically C-A-R-M-A, is part of the healing-centered engagement framework that really centers five things, culture, agency, relationships, meaning, and the last and most important things, y'all, aspirations. Because with aspirations, anything is possible. We cannot dream of a different world. We cannot dream of getting out of oppression. We cannot dream of overcoming our oppressor if we don't have aspirations. So that's where the karma chronicles and the karma principles really center on to be able to infuse healing centered engagement work in, in what we do. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, last question for me is, um, did we miss anything, Chris? Is there anything you, that's burning on your heart that you didn't, what, wasn't able to share in your story that we might have left yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I just encourage all of our communities to really be introspective about in their own way when they're ready is how anti-Blackness really shows up individually, interpersonally, institutionally, and culturally in our various communities, right? and how that really affects even our own healing. 
So the thing about bringing up a topic like that is there is no blueprint or metric for it. There is no step-by-step. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. It's really a self-reflective process. And knowing that anti-blackness and capitalism is really the root of a lot of disparities, a lot of discrimination, a lot of the systems that are make up um, the atrocities of this country and all around the world, right? So as we're thinking about uplifting our own culture as Asian people, as we should, and maintaining our culture from back home and recreating what that culture means to us as new generation Americans here in this country, we also have to also on the other side be introspective about how anti-blackness really shows up in our communities as well. So I encourage everybody because every, every one of your listeners are hella dope. They wouldn't be listening to y'all if they weren't, right? Because they got some sense and listening to two really smart, beautiful people. So to really think about that in a lot of ways and how it shows up because, you know, getting at the root of how that shows up for us as Asian people makes our communities better as a whole as well. So that's, that's you know, that's a whole other, you know, topic of conversation that could go on for hours too but i just wanted to part two yeah exactly exactly you know but just wanted to before before we do go Mm -hmm. on i just want to say and acknowledge um chris how profound that statement is that you just made and to share the sentiment that i remember when we spoke before this podcast um you you stated that you work every day on your anti-blackness and i want to say i do I have anti-blackness. I've grown up in a culture of that and I work on it every day. And the funny thing is that I never really articulated it until I'm doing it right Mm. now, (laughs) but I've always known in my head. So I just feel good. I can say it right now that it's something because it's kind of like a shameful Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. You know, leaning into that vulnerageousness, right? Like we talked about, right? And again, one of the things that I've recognized over the last couple of years is saying that just means that I have to do better. And I'm just speaking for myself. Something like that, you can't speak for anybody but yourself. And I say every day I unpack anti-blackness that shows up in me because it's been so rooted in me, y'all. So rooted in me. Going back to elementary school in Lafayette in the sixth grade, because back then elementary school went back to the sixth grade. So I remember this very clearly. I won't say the teacher's name, but 1996. In the textbook, we were still being taught that Columbus discovered America. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That came from schools, y'all. They're telling stories about enslaving folks, y'all, in the books. In 1996, not too long ago, in West Oakland, four blocks away from the Fermery Park, where the Black Panther Party really had a lot of their community work happen. Lafayette Elementary School was the closest park in the entire world to the Fermery Park, right? And in the textbook, they still got that garbage. So when I say unpacking anti-blackness, doesn't mean necessarily that every day I'm doing direct things that cause harm, but it also just means that a lot of this is deeply, deeply rooted in us. And it takes introspection to be able to unpack it. And it never stops because every day we consume things. Every day we look at things in media, in news, that reaffirms a lot of the anti-blackness and racist policies and principles of this country that it comes up, right? So yeah, I appreciate that question. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And I think uh, hand in hand with introspection is being able to express with that vulnerable courage in community and to work through it in community and to be in connection and to be in conversation. Because I think, you know, 
for for me too it's it's a it's a it's a conversation that's scary to go into uh you know like Adele was saying there's shame there you know there's shame of what we grew up with with what our parents said to us about black folks growing up and being able to unpack that introspect and then unpack that together in community I think is so powerful and this container that we have here between the three of us being such a powerful sacred space and moment here and just wanted to acknowledge and appreciate you Chris for uh, really creating that for us here as well. I appreciate y'all. One love, y'all. And I think uh, the comedian Hassan Minaj on his now canceled show, The Patriot Act, which, you know, we can think about why it was canceled, right? One of uh, his most powerful episodes happened right during the uprisings two years ago. And one of the things that he was saying as he was unpacking about just himself is that for our immigrant communities and our, even our refugee communities, we cannot come to this country and benefit from the positives without also owning its atrocities, without also owning its atrocities. And that's what privilege really shows up. Because when I talk about anti-blackness, that's really what I'm talking about, y'all, is our privilege. Because we get to tap out of that when we want to. We get to travel and go somewhere else, maybe in majority white and Asian spaces, right? A free mind or, or a Cupertino or whatever it is, right? But that's not the reality for a lot of folks in this country. So just recognizing that and number one, just naming that just to start and how that unpacks for you, you know, that's on you. It's all love, y'all, because we all need each other. We all need each other. There is no division here. We all need each other to ensure that deconstructing oppression really happens one day for us in this country. It's beautiful. All right. Uh I'm ready for that tea meditation, Chris. Uh, tell us, tell our listeners what they need for this meditation. For sure, y'all, for sure. So as an homage to me just trying to be a better Buddhist in my life, no, I'm kidding, but also not kidding. Uh, what I would encourage everyone to do, and me, Danielle, and Adele already have it ready, but uh, go ahead and grab a cup of tea. Go ahead and grab a cup of tea, your favorite cup of tea. So your favorite mug or whatever you have that's available and tea. So right now for me today, I have some lemon herbal tea and I actually would love uh, Danielle and Adele um, for y'all to share as folks are grabbing their tea, uh, what tea y'all chose today. I chose probably one of my favorite teas is Bengal spice, uh, just has all these cinnamon and Mm -hmm. uh cardamom like just all these different that gives us a very sweet aroma without any caffeine in it which is great beautiful i have jasmine tea to to just reflect on my ancestry my vietnamese ancestry my mom drinks the same tea and my grandma drinks the same tea so i'm drinking it right now and they're on beautiful too. thank you so much for sharing y'all and for the three of us here and our listeners at home what we're gonna do today is once you grab your favorite tea, I want you to find just a com comfortable area uh, where you can sit or stand. Sometimes it's outside, sometimes it's inside, sometimes it's a chair, a couch, whatever makes you comfortable. And what I love about this practice and this tea mindfulness, y'all, is that we can do it in five minutes on a go, or it could be a much longer process to either start our day or end our day 
whatever comes to mind for you. And the thing about tea, too, as folks get settled in, is that while we traditionally think about tea as more of an Asian and East Asian practice, right, that's deeply rooted in a lot of rituals, tea rituals at weddings and Japanese tea gardens and all of these things, we know that tea is very intersectional. We know that Africa and African culture and African countries use tea in so many different ways. We know that Africans of the African diaspora and black Americans here in the country use tea in so many ways. Indian folks, right, Latinx folks use tea in so many ways. So tea is a resonating force around the country and around the world in so many ways. So as you find yourself in a comfortable position, you know, I encourage you to start to just notice your breathing. Just notice your breathing, y'all. Nothing more. Just feel how your body is pushing your chest out as you inhale and back down as you exhale. And as you do that a couple more times, I want you to put your cup of tea to the side, but somewhere where you can reach and take a couple more breaths, just normal breaths, and just notice how your body is feeling in the moment. Also want you to kind of notice the freshness of the tea that you have and notice the layers of the medicine in your tea working this magic, y'all. And then I want you to grab your, tup, your cup of tea if you haven't already. If you have a lid on it, it's okay. But if you don't have a lid on it, I want you to look at the color of the tea and notice its colors. Most teas are coming in, in some version of brown, but some are yellow, some are green, right? Notice the color of the tea and how the tea really reflects that herbal medicine mixing together for you. And some teas are bitter, right? So depending on the tea that you chose. But bitterness sometimes is a good thing too because it's a lot of nutrients that come with that. And for me today, I'm drinking lemon tea, which specifically has hints of rose and lemongrass, hibiscus and peppermint leaves, among other things. And hibiscus specifically, y'all, offers a lot of anti antioxidants, among other benefits. So one of the things about this tea practice is I want to encourage everyone to not necessarily just sip tea, but also notice some of the nutrients that are going into it, right? So if you haven't already, I want you to invite you to take your first sip of tea. And I'm going to do so as well. And then as you take your first sip, just notice how it hits your lips, how it feels. Notice how your mouth feels as your tea starts to go through your body. If you're holding your cup, notice your tea's heat on your palm, the weight of the cup on your fingers. Notice your tea's liquid vibration, it's beautiful smell. And as you take another couple breaths, as you still notice your chest going in and out in that rhythmic notion, I want you to take another sip of your tea and notice this time its smoothness as you tap in and recognize your body's sensory and feelings as the tea goes down and gets swallowed down your throat. Continue breathing, 
indulging in this process that we're in right now. And focus on how the tea really nourishes your throat. You know, in the work we do, y'all, we often forget or don't notice how important our throat is to our health, right? Oftentimes when we get under the weather, as we say, our throat is the first indicator that tells us that it's time for us to rest. So as you take another sip, just now notice how your tea really helps to heal your throat and how it really adds nutrients to your throat and how nutrients really stay in your throat. So for me, the lemon tea that I'm drinking also offers benefits of my digestive system. The lemon tea can help with my skin health, alleviates anxiety, among other benefits. So as you sip your tea, I really want you to think about the benefits of your tea as well and how some of that herbal medicine really helping you and your body right now. And the next sip of tea you take really now wants you to notice how the tea is hitting your stomach. Notice the heat of the tea and how it's running through your arms, down to your fingers, how your tea and its nutrients are running down your legs, and down to your feet and your toes. And notice how the medicine of your tea is now permeating through your body, helping to eliminate all the toxins in your body right now, both socially and physically de-stressing your muscles and sending a reminder that sitting and being with your tea is more than okay. And feel free to continue to sip your tea at your leisure, you know, as we wrap up, centering you, your health, your intentions, with the reminder that devoting full attention for just a couple minutes as you drink your tea every day can shift your day-to-day healing. So I extend this practice as an invitation to include for yourself as you see fit and how you see fit. One love, family.